So nearly two decades ago, surgeons first described the ex-utero intrapartum treatment, or EXIT for short. This procedure is designed for treating a newborn with a mass obstructing its mouth, neck, or chest that would make it difficult or impossible for the baby to breathe on its own once the umbilical cord had been cut. In an EXIT procedure, an obstetrician performs a partial cesarean birth, keeping the baby attached to the umbilical cord until a pediatric airway surgeon can safely place a breathing tube in the newborn's mouth or surgically make a hole in the neck to place a different form of breathing tube to bypass the obstruction. Once that has been accomplished, the baby can be fully delivered in the umbilical cord cut. In this procedure, the mother temporarily becomes a heart-lung machine for the partially born child. If this seems the stuff of science fiction, welcome to the world of modern-day medicine. That was Chris Hartnick, a pediatric ear, nose, and throat physician at Mass Eye and Ear in Boston and a professor at Harvard Medical School. He read from his first opinion essay, Whose Life Do I Prioritize? A Choice No Parent Wants to Make. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO of STAT, here to discuss how medicine shortages represent an urgent public health crisis. But it's a crisis that we can fix. I'm joined by Eric Edwards, President and CEO of Flow, to discuss how the company is reimagining essential medicine production in the U.S. Thanks, Angus. When Americans visit their doctor or go to a hospital, they expect that the medicines they have to rely on each and every day will be available. Unfortunately, some of our country's most vital medications have experienced shortages that have persisted for years due to a poorly designed global supply chain. Our nation's over-reliance on foreign sources for many of our essential medicines has left the United States vulnerable and resulted in overworked and understaffed health systems. To overcome this challenge, Flow is reshoring the production of essential medicines using the power of advanced manufacturing processes right here at home. For more information on this issue, visit www.flow-usa.com. That's www.phlow-usa.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's so great to talk with you, Chris. Well, it's, it's wonderful to talk to you, Pat, as well. And thank you so much for all you do. So you're a pediatric otolaryngologist, meaning you specialize in problems with the ear, nose, and throat. I don't connect this type of doctor with the delivery room, and I bet most listeners don't either. Yet you're no stranger to it. What kinds of problems bring someone like you into a delivery? Well, I'm a pediatric ear, nose, and throat doctor, but I specialize in taking care of children who have difficulty breathing in, 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 in that way. And um, children is a big, broad word. We tend to think of children uh, from the time they're born to the time they're 18. But in the modern world of medicine, sometimes children, we see them even earlier uh, when we know that 
when a mother becomes pregnant and they have their first ultrasound, if that child uh, has a mass on their ultrasound uh, showing that there is a mass in the mouth, in the neck, something that when the child is born and the umbilical cord is cut, the child may have difficulty breathing, uh, that is when the obstetricians uh, and the high-risk obstetricians uh, call me and we begin our collaboration. And so you you know about this sometimes weeks, months in advance, don't you? We do know that, that usually we know, have some sense uh, that there may be an issue somewhere around the end of the first trimester or the beginning of the second trimester. And we have some time to plan to see if things will change, if things are safe, and uh, or to try to wait until the child is uh, mature enough, usually if we can, around the 32nd week or later, um, um, to breathe on uh, his or her own. But uh, before the child, the mother herself goes into labor where all our possibilities are limited. So it's that cutting the umbilical cord before then, the baby is getting its complete oxygen supply from its mother. The minute that cord is cut, everything changes, doesn't it? That's right. And and the procedure, this exit procedure that we, we speak about, um, borrows from nature's own methodology where the mother is producing oxygen and delivering that to uh, the, the, the fetus or the infant when the child is delivered for those moments before the umbilical cord is cut. Um, and then saying, can we actually not decrease the blood flow, which we would do in the cesarean section, but can we increase that blood flow and therefore increase the oxygen and preserve that connection between child and mother while we find a way to make that child's airway safe and then cut the cut the umbilical cord. How risky is this procedure for the mother? When we describe risk and benefit, it's such a personal decision, isn't it? That we every we're assigning risk to mother, and she is assigning risk to herself, and thinking about that in parallel or in contrast to the risk to her child. The risk to the mother is that by increasing the blood flow to the uterus and therefore to the placenta and therefore to the umbilical cord, when you make the incision in the uterus to deliver the child, there can be significant bleeding and therefore a risk uh, of, of transfusion and even death to the mother. During a, quote, normal cesarean section, at the, right before the incision is made, isn't medicine given to decrease blood flow? So you're kind of doing something opposite here. Normally with the cesarean, the whole point is to diminish the risk to the mother such that right as the incision is made, medicines are given such that there isn't so much bleeding. But during an exit procedure, uh, that's exactly what we want is blood flow. So the risk is heightened. In an exit procedure, is the risk of bleeding higher than it is during a normal cesarean section? Significantly. And that's one of the things that we discuss beforehand with the mother and the family so that they're aware of it. It's part of their choice. As you described in the opening of your essay, you once heard what you called the tense silence that stretches between when a doctor cuts the umbilical cord and the baby's first cry in an operating room where 32 people were bustling around all awaiting the birth of a baby with a massive growth covering her neck. 
In this particular procedure that you're talking about, things didn't quite go as planned. So if you could tell the story of this couple, that would really, I think, really help set the groundwork for us. Well, this is a, you know, this, this is a, uh, um, a couple like, like I, I think most other um, couples who are, who are looking forward to that wonderful moment of, of birth. And, and we go through, we always, we, we don't think about birth in its, in its darkest form. We think about it in its wonderful form. And they were looking forward and expecting uh, to go forward and proceed with pregnancy and deliver a, a quote-unquote normal child. And uh, somewhere around 19 or 20 weeks when, when this ultrasound came, um, it was shocking for them. They were told that their, that their child... Um, had a relative large mass in their in that child's mouth and obstructing into the neck that was unsure what it is, was unsure how large it was, and might in fact pose a problem for their pregnancy. And you can't see any deeper than that. I mean, you really didn't know what developmental issues this fully posed. You can, in the modern era, when with an ultrasound gum. Shows something like that, one can actually get a what's called a fetal MRI, which is an, uh, which is an MRI of the mother's abdomen, and within the mother's abdomen, you can see the uterus and the child. But think about the, uh, going through a mother's tissues and then the uh, uterus, and then into the fetal tissues. It's just not as accurate as an MRI of you and I would be. What was the first choice? So I and I so that goes back to your conversation at 22 weeks or so I believe. The first choice is made when uh, an abnormality is seen on on the on the first ultrasound that shows an abnormality, and at that early phase, uh, at least in today in certain states and in uh, in certain places, uh, a, a, a woman has the right to think about. Does she want to carry that child to term or not? Uh, and when we meet with those uh, mothers and parents, we have uh, obstetricians, and I, I go over what an exit is, and the anesthesiologists meet, and ethicists meet, and we uh, we provide the uh, woman, uh, the mother, and the and the family with the support that we all the support we have to try to. Um, support uh, her in her decision. And so what was the second set of decisions that need needed to be made? Well, the second set of decisions comes a little bit after, around the, around the 25th, 26th, 27th week, when um, the mother has been followed for a period of time, and the, and the follow-up ultrasounds show that this mass is not diminishing, that their normal mm-hmm. airways are not seen, when a follow-up MRI says, if we were to deliver this infant by normal means, either vaginally or by cesarean section, we very well might not be able to establish an airway. And if that child tried to breathe, it would obstruct and die. So is there the capacity to do this form of exit procedure? And should we plan on that and go through the risks and the benefits with the mother and allow her to be part of what we call shared decision making, where we and the patient, in this case the mother, go through the risks and the benefits and decide together 
what 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 is in their best interest and in, of them and what does she want? This couple, you called them Jessica and Paul, decided to continue the pregnancy. That decision is no longer really a it's no longer a decision in many states, is it? Well, I think that's right. And I think that one of the thoughts that comes, it's not that every just one of these decisions leads towards an exit decision or not, but it does uh, raise the question when fetuses like this are identified that may or may not actually be viable. And we don't know this. Um, what are the risks to mom and what are the risks to the fetus if you try, if that child is uh, birthed? Um, that that come forth from those set of decisions and those early decisions, and um, where does one decision lead you towards the next set of decisions? And that's where that really, in the context of when we don't know, we're we're assigning risks and benefits under situations that can be very very dangerous. You had planned to do the procedure at about thirty two weeks, but the mother went into preterm labor. At 29 weeks. Uh, I think that one of the things about this procedure and one of the specifics to to medicine is we practice and we practice and we practice uh, in order so that we are um, ready for, I suppose, the known and the unknown. And then the unknown happens and we have to change where we are. We were planning for an exit procedure um, and that works as long as uh, the the woman doesn't go into preterm labor. Once she goes into preterm labor, immediately you have to make a choice: should you continue, and then the risk is much much higher, or do you abort, go to a regular cesarean section, and see if you can save the child after, but do detach the uh, umbilical cord from the uh, child and the mom as quickly as you can to preserve this the health of the mom. It was so very, very hard for this for this mother and the family in the sense that they they all of the soul searching that they did to make this decision to go forward with an exit and all of the decisions to risk herself for her child all of a sudden have to get reconfigured very, very rapidly when she goes into preterm labor because the risk benefit ratio has changed. And now her risk of bleeding is so much higher and even when, if she were to go forward with that risk uh, for herself, if the placenta really does separate and there is not oxygen, were we to do the exit procedure, we might not have time. Uh, but we would have already made the decision. So she already would be, would be accepting these increased risks. So does she choose that again? And she chose? To prioritize herself, she chose her. To, uh, agonizing decision. Uh, 100%. And, and one n- nobody can make without a tremendous amount of self-reflection and guilt that are they making a decision for themselves and not for their child. So what was the outcome of the delivery? We del- the, uh, the child was delivered. We cut the umbilical cord and uh, the child came over to the, to the table and we, uh, I made an incision in the child's neck. Um, and there was an, um, the neck itself was um, completely obstructed by a, a golf ball like, I suppose, mass that was obstructing the neck and, and most of the chin. Um, and where there usually is an air pipe that connects from your mouth to your lungs, in this situation, 
there was no air pipe. That this that when my finger went right down through the skin and felt spine, probably em embryologically in the womb when there was a mass uh, pushing, uh, there was no signal to create an airway because the, the mass was pushing where the airway would have developed. So this is doubly devastating. I mean, had there had the procedure been successful, the parents have a baby. It's kind of maybe possible to wash all the bad stuff out, but but this couple didn't get that chance. No, and 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 um, you know we we get we don't get to live life backwards. We only live it forwards. And in this situation, moreover, uh, had we tried an exit procedure, uh, in fact, there would be very little we could have done in the fact that there was no trachea, but we would have put her at risk. So as it turns out, um, she was safe, but we did not know that and could not have known that. And she had to make that decision without that set of knowledge. It, I, I think people sometimes are still surprised that there are unknowns in medicine. Oh, I, I think that's so very, very true. I think that, you know, I, I, I'm struck that our, 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 we've moved with our culture in this concept of shared decision making where we make decisions together, but it, and we practice and we practice and we practice, but there's so much unknown that we're reacting uh, in the moment, in the moment of trauma where we just don't know an outcome in the moment of a, uh, a, a something gone awry where we have to make decisions. And those moments are moments of real, um, in some sense, isolation, where that, that mother was making a decision all by herself and felt very, very alone in that decision making. These situations, I think for you, happened a while ago. What brought them to the fore now? What made you think about them and want to write about them now? Well, I think that we are clearly in an era where uh, the context of autonomy and choice and a woman's right to choose are in the forefront of everyone's minds, wherever you may feel and wherever may you may fall uh, in terms of what your thoughts are about it. It was really, I suppose, in that backdrop that this mother and these three different sets of choices that she had to make over the short, relatively short period of time became so prominent in, in, in my thoughts. You know, are, are the kinds of conversations you had with this couple and another patient you described in the essay, is that unusual territory for you? Uh, well, I, I take care of a lot of the children who have pe either pediatric uh, airway problems or have pediatric uh, head and neck cancer. So we're talking about uh, kids um, where the outcome is not known and where we're, we're pushing the boundary uh, at times. And children come to see us because they may not have, el they have found else answers elsewhere and, and there may not be any specific answer. And we're trying to find answers where answers are not exactly easily found. So it's important, I think, to have those conversations before. And, and those are sets of conversations that that we that I do have. You I'm, I'm just guessing here, but you seem from our our kind of email conversations about writing like a reflective person. Do these conversations with patients teach you anything as a doctor or as a person? 
Oh, I, I, one of the most, I, I, you know, I went into medicine to have these kinds of conversations. Uh, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, uh, I feel like I'm a surgeon who continues to learn from my patients and, and teaches you, um, it, it teaches you humility and humanity. I think at the same time that, that these are, um, you can't put yourself in the, in the shoes of your patients and this mother, no matter how you can try, uh, uh, and you can certainly uh, learn from one parent and one mother to the next how these conversations are lived. But each one of those are so uh, are so individual, and and it's so important that the, that you not generalize and but you let that you let these families make their own individual decisions. In the birth story that you've been telling. You're describing a really complicated and sometimes mysterious process with a whole bunch of unknown factors. After the Supreme Court's recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, many states have enacted abortion bans and restrictions. Some laws make exceptions to the ban when the life of the mother is at risk. But do these exceptions for the life of the mother sometimes oversimplify this conundrum? I think that one of the problems of these laws that are um, coming forth is that they may, of necessity, simplify very complex decision-making processes because I don't think you can describe the unknown. That no matter how many times we describe, well, if this situation happens, then this, we should do this, or we are able to do this. But the whole problem of that is that we can't describe the unknown. This mother was said, didn't just have one choice. She had three choices. It's as if you have a dichotomous choice. You choose at one period of time, this is what's going to happen. But life doesn't play out that way. In this family, it happened three times but it could have happened twice. It doesn't very often happen once. You mentioned ethicists being involved, the whole team being involved in making these decisions. In some hospitals within states with abortion restrictions that allow for exceptions when a mother's life is in danger, there are hospital committees getting involved in those decisions. Do you think that's a good idea or does that complicate things? You know, I, I think that the further away that you go from the mother's or a parent's or a family's choices in terms of what they are experiencing for themselves, the more complicated it becomes and, and the more regula- regulated it becomes. And, and um, I think that it's fraught with, with risk. And, and um, I know there are people that feel very strongly the other uh, in another way and, and for very, uh, and, I respect their their reasons, if you know, and especially um, for religious reasons. But on the other hand, on an individual case from mother to mother and parent to parent, um, it certainly rings deep to the bone to hope that the mother and the parent have a say in their own destiny. Mm. Did you ever expect your work to intersect with such a political part of medicine, or what's become such a political part of medicine? No, 
I didn't. I didn't. I'm not an obstetrician, as you said. I didn't. This is the, <laughs> my. I, I take care of kids. And I take care of children with breathing issues. I don't, you know. And, and the number of times I'm in a high risk obstetrical situation are are are, are low. It certainly gives me newfound respect for those uh, midwives and obstetricians and and healthcare providers that are in that scenario day to day, working with the mothers to make these very difficult decisions. Were you wary about writing about this now, or did you kind of decide now's the time? Well, I I, I did uh, like any good decision I make. I just I discussed it with my wife, and <laughs> and, 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 uh, and I um, there is a trepidation now. I think the world is so divided in terms of people have such strong feelings on one way or the other. But I, I the only way we're going to bridge that is if we do write about it and we do talk about it and we do explore these issues where um, there is this intersection between um, this concept of a person's right to choose for themselves and a, and a state or a committee's body to regulate what they can and cannot choose. Um, the Supreme Court uh, weighed one way several decades ago and is weighing this way now. But that's not a black and white issue. That's an ongoing dialogue. And I think it's so important for this dialogue to continue. You've written a half a dozen or so essays for STAT and others for The Conversation, The New England Journal of Medicine, Medium, and other outlets. One of your early ones for STAT had the memorable title, quote, My son will be fine, she told the doctors, because he is the Lord God Jesus Christ. That was a great essay. When did you get the writing bug? Oh, uh, well, I was a, I was a literature major. So I guess you could ask me, when did I get the, when did I get the medicine bug? My uh, father was uh, an entertainment lawyer in New York City and, and represented many of the playwrights in New York City. And, and I remember Neil Simon, uh, or listening, getting the great chance to hear him talk about how he, dealt with humor. And he remembered his humor by always keeping a diary every day. And if the minute something funny was said, he would scribble it down. <laughs> and, and I think I've, I've kept that. I, I've always kept a journal. I feel like data, it helps me process for myself. And then it becomes the structure of that which I, I write as I reflect upon it. Is it therapy for you or a creative outlet or what? I think it's a little bit of both. After such a procedure as going through and and um, and in this situation, losing that child, it's hard to come home and just go about your day to day life and not be touched by that and not think about that and not process it. And uh, different people process it in different ways. Some people push it down under the surface and think about it later. Um, I find to write about it and just to cast both sides of it in my own way allows me to process it in a way that I can go forward. Well, Chris, many thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about difficult decisions and writing. I hope I'm going to see your other essays down the road. And I have to say good luck with Operation Airway, the nonprofit you started more than 10 years ago that helps kids around the world get care for their breathing problems. Well, thank you, Pat, for all all that you do. It's an, what a pleasure to work with you. And, and um I feel like I have one of the most wonderful jobs in the world dealing with children and parents in their difficult times and feel very, very grateful for it. Before we cut to the credits, I'd like to mention something stemming from the inaugural First Opinion podcast back in February 2021. My guest for the first episode was Jay Baruch, a veteran emergency physician in Rhode Island who's also a terrific writer. At the time, 
Jay mentioned he was working on a book to be published by the MIT Press that was actually prompted in part by his essay for STAT called Stuck in a Tornado of Life, a Patient's Chaos Narrative. A couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of attending a public reading to celebrate the launch of his book. If you enjoy reading thoughtful essays on medicine, emergency care, and what makes us human, I recommend picking up a copy of Jay's book, Tornado of Life. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID and the whitewater ahead.